Welcome to the Head First Podcast. My name is Joe O'Brien and I'm a health psychologist in training. I'm the founder of Head First, so if you have any professional inquiries, you can contact me through my website, headfirst.ie, or through my Instagram, which is headfirstzero. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome back to the Head First podcast. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Sophie Mort, a clinical psychologist by training, and just really excited to flesh out all about what her new book is about, all about what it, it contains. And I actually went to a talk of Sophie's a while back on emotions and where they come from and the purpose of them and the function of them. And even though I've done some of it in my training, I was like really impressed. I was like, really, I really enjoyed the talk. And I thought what a great opportunity to, to maybe get you on and have a chat about, you know, you're doing a lot of this work at the moment in terms of promoting the book and it looks like it's, it's going well. So I'm just really interested um, to hear all about, you know, what's in it, what you kind of felt was, was kind of missing in, in the field, I guess. And I guess to start, for people who maybe don't know that much about you or who haven't come across you before, it'd be great to maybe get an introduction as to who you are and what you do. Perfect. So um, I go by many names, Dr. Sophie Mort, Dr. Soph, Sophie, Soph is good. Um, <laughs> as you said, I'm a clinical psychologist and I spend my time trying to get psychology out of the therapy room and into people's lives in ways that make sense to them. Ideally meets them where they're at. And ideally, my best hope is that people find out what they need to know about what makes them tick, what makes them struggle and how to cope before they need this information. Because having worked in many mental health services and having had panic attacks myself, I've seen the experience of people really only accessing the support they need once they've hit rock bottom. And it's so much easier. Well, firstly, we can actually prevent a lot of people reaching what we'd call a clinical level of diagnosis by giving them the information they need before they need it. Um, And secondly, it's just so much easier for people to come back from the edge before they kind of drop down into that well of despair. Because once you're in that well, there's often a lot of shame, a lot of stigmatization that you put on yourself and that others might give you too. So... Yeah, I'm all about getting making psychology accessible whenever someone wants to learn about it. Yeah, I, I find your page wonderful. And that's where I came across you in the first instance. And it is wonderful to see that. It's essentially what you're saying there is, you know, people often only search for the information when they're in the pit of it. And you want to change that or you want to kind of, I guess, give them that before they ever get to that point. I guess it, it must be a lot harder to I guess, work on that stuff when they're there rather than working on it nearly before they get there. Would that be fair? Yes, but it's not just that people only search then, it's that they might only reach reach criteria to be referred by their doctor to a service once they are struggling a certain amount. And right. so it's two things. Okay, so also... Help yeah. until we're really struggling and we're not often offered help until we're really struggling, at which point we often end up on a waiting list. So the services themselves kind of rule people out because of their levels of, of, you know, not meeting the diagnostic criteria, I guess. Would that be it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's not the, that, I don't think that's the fault of services. I think that's uh, funding as an issue, but also the fact that it's not down to, for example, the NHS to be uh, handing out this basic information. It's something we could be taught in schools. It's something we could be raised with. 
So, yeah. So you've written this book to what address some of that so the, the book is called a manual for being human right mm, yes where did the inspiration come from for it um you know what were you seeing in the world that you thought you know this book can can help with some of that well firstly i suppose what's different about this book to other books right now the market in terms of well-being wellness and self-help is saturated so the reason i wanted to write a manual for being human wasn't to add to the crowded voices it was because you pretty much find a book on any specific topic, right? Say you're struggling with negative self-talk, there's a book for that. Say you're struggling with relationships, you can find a book on attachment styles. But to date, there hasn't been a book that takes you from your first breath to wherever you are in right, are right now in life. A book that gives you the entire foundation of the human experience. So this book to me is kind of... Um, the structure upon which you can put other books. And this is important because often what we do is we do reach for the self-help information. We maybe do execute the tips that we're offered and then we find it only helps one part of our life because you know we humans are incredibly complicated. You often do need more information than you think you need. So that's one reason. And then another thing is my gran had this uh, book when I was growing up. Um, it had nothing to do with psychology. It was like this little manual for being at home, basically. And if you made your gravy too greasy or you ripped a hole in your jeans or, I don't know, you had a wobbly table and it was, you know, a piece of paper wouldn't fix it to try and prop the table up. This book had the answer to everything. So it was just funny because my experience as a kid was that, oh, adults have the answers. And if they don't have it, it's in books. And we do really have manuals for everything. You know, there's a Haynes manual for your car. There's books on pretty much anything you want to learn. But actually, when I had panic attacks at the age of 18, you know, I went from being this really cocky kid who thought nothing could go wrong to suddenly being terrified to leave the house. And no adult I knew had the answer. They looked as nonplussed and confused and scared as I, as I felt, right? Because mental health was really stigmatized. Um, and I didn't have a manual I could turn to. So I think the mix of what I said about working in mental health services, where I kept seeing people lacking the basic information that could really have helped them. See, thinking about my grand's manual from when I was a kid and knowing we didn't have them as an adult and having very much experienced personally as an 18 year old, um, the effects of a lack of information and not knowing where to turn to manage my mental health. Those three things combined for me to think, right, I'm gonna make the manual that my grandma had about the house, but for being human. And hopefully no one will ever have to feel the way I did again. You know, I did as, at the age of 18. That's incredible. Um, you're right. Like I, I'm thinking of all the psychology books that, that I've come across over the years and how often it is localized or specified to one specific thing or it's very like present focused yep. Yep. um so you're talking about the lifespan and how people develop over time when you talk about the mental health services you've worked in and people coming in i know that the the public services here they often have limited time frames you know you'll get six sessions for free or eight sessions for free or you might have a specific program that you follow do you ever find that some of that time is used up with trying to explain all the basics that could be explained maybe through something like, like that book? Like there's so much time used on 
the basics rather than actually getting into the work. Yes, and I am happy to dish out the basics. I will never get bored of doing that. But exactly as you say, if you're in a time-limited service, I want to be using that time to do the nuanced work with you, the really complex work that's going to help you really make change in your life rather than use that beginning time giving you the basics that could have been taught elsewhere and then having very little time left to get really into the nitty gritty of what makes you you. So actually that's basically the reason I left my job in the NHS and started out on Instagram was because I was really aware that there's only one of me. (laughs) What's the best way I can use my time and support, for example, um, the waiting lists in the NHS, get that information out to people before they need it. So precious resources aren't used giving information that could be gained elsewhere. Amazing. So talk me through some of the components of this. Like I said, I went to one of your talks and one of the things I really wanted to speak to you about was emotions. So like, I am in training and I I have done some of this work, but going to a talk like that, it was kind of insightful. You talked about like the evolutionary purposes of of these kinds of feelings and emotions. And I think that would be really valuable for people to kind of hear about. I think people listening to this would love to hear that side of things because it comes up in clinic so much. This idea of, you know, ignoring your emotions or not wanting to have them because you don't have maybe the skills or the understanding of of what it means. So, Or because you've been taught from a young person that the only emotion you're meant to show is happiness, right? If you think about the kinds of comments that are really common in society and people never really mean harm by these comments, you know, chin up, get a grip, um, just smile. It could be worse. These simple comments that teach us as little people, oh, I'm not meant to feel whatever feeling I'm having now. I'm just meant to smile. So I'll smile, but I don't know what to do with that other emotion. So I'll just pretend it's not there. And that's it. It's kind of most innocuous, right? Some people have actually been actively shamed for having other emotions or um, have seen in the movies and the media, anyone who's struggling, um, who's portrayed often as the mad or bad or as that their life is over or that they're chaotic and something's wrong with us. It's very hard for people to escape these early messages that emotions are bad and that there are negative emotions that must be avoided. So it's it's even more complex than we haven't been taught what to do with them. We've literally been taught to try and uh, distance ourselves from them, which means that when the painful emotions pop up, of course we don't want them. Not only do they not feel nice, we have no idea where to turn. So the talk that you came to, um, I absolutely love talking about emotions. There have been lots and lots of emotion theories, but um, the constructed theory of emotion. So Lisa Lisa Feldman Barrett is a neuroscientist who writes a lot about this. It's such a fascinating way of thinking about our emotions because it tells us um, not only that every emotion has a purpose, that it is a physical response that arises in our body to try and make us turn towards the things that would help us thrive in life. You know, the hot, yummy meal, the hot, yummy person, um, the friendship groups, um, anything that's going to really like help you procreate, live, thrive, but also helps you avoid or fight against the things that might be a threat to your survival. So it doesn't just tell us that. What's really particularly interesting here is that this theory of emotion tells us that these emotions arise in our body in response to what our brain predicts will happen. 
Okay. So for example, quick basics on uh, emotions. It was anger, for example, that had our ancestors turning towards and fighting back, um, fighting against any predator or someone who stole their resources. It was fear that had our ancestors' legs running them away from danger. It was anxiety that had them panic about everything that could go wrong in order for them to predict their way out of it to survive. And um, it was happiness, arousal, interest that turned them towards the group. But we think that our ancestors didn't sit around and wait for the tiger to be in their camp or their resources to be gone. Our brains instead evolved to make predictions about what's going to happen next. So, for example, they might be sitting around campfire, hear a twig snap in the bushes, and suddenly they're running for their life or preparing to fight before that tiger even comes in. So this means that you and I are constantly making predictions about what's going to happen next. We think our brain scans the environment for change four times per second. So you're not even really listening to my words right now. You are listening, but your brain is predicting what I'm going to say next. So... Emotions are these physical responses that arise in our body, but they don't arise in return to what's happening in response to what's happening. They arise based on what you predict will happen. So have you ever had, for example, an email or a text saying we need to talk from either a lover or a boss? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Did you notice your heart start to kind of beat a little bit faster? Your muscles start to tense? Your brain suddenly screaming, I'm going to get fired or I'm going to get dumped. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, that is a prime example of our brain using prediction and preparing you physically to respond to that prediction, not to what is really happening in the world. And for all of us, we basically, even though all of us do experience our emotions slightly differently, um, essentially, whenever our brain thinks it perceives threat, it prepares us to run or to fight for our lives or sends us into that kind of frozen anxiety response of uh, predicting everything that could go wrong. Even though, if someone did text you saying, um, we need to talk, running, fighting for your life and shutting down is not the appropriate response. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. So what you're saying there is there's really, I guess, a lot of value in those emotions and turning away from them, especially from an evolutionary perspective, but also now in terms of the way we live can be kind of harmful. And that there's, a, that there's a reason we should pay attention to those things. Exactly, exactly. If you think about an ancestor who ignored a signal, you know, of like, oh, there's a tiger in the bush, they might die. So for us, when we, I mean, we don't have to pay attention to every moment. Look, like it, throughout the day, you're going to fluctuate in mood. You don't have to be open to every single one. Like, oh, this is sadness. Oh, this is anger, paying attention. But we do need to make space for all of our emotions. That's why mindfulness is so good, right? The idea that our... Um, our mind is almost like the sky and our emotions are like the weather that come and go. We need to do this because if we ignore them, if it's a threatening emotion and our brain wants us to pay attention to something in our environment, it's only going to shout at you louder. Okay. So you've mentioned there about how traditionally the emotions were very functional. Um, how are they functional now or how do they kind of work now? Why might it be important to not necessarily pay attention to every single thing, but be aware that these things can, can come and go. What, what like functions might they serve now? Okay, so they all serve exactly the same functions. So for example, um, if you step out into the road and you hear a car engine in the distance and you jump out of the way, 
That is that fight or flight response working exactly as it would have done for our ancestors, predicting danger, pulling you out of it. Um, but there, the difficulty is, as you've, I think you're alluding to, which is so perfect, is that we don't have tigers walking into our houses very often now. We don't as often have people trying to take our resources, right? So our emotions are slightly different because we might get anxiety when actually there isn't any danger in the future. We might feel angry when no, we don't need to turn towards people. But our emotions, when we pay attention to them, we notice, oh, my brain thinks something threatening is happening right now and it is preparing me to run or fight. Do I agree that I'm actually in danger? What is the evidence kind of for and against that? If I'm feeling anger, anger is a really interesting emotion, right? We mainly we think it's a negative, but anger tells us that either someone's crossed our boundary is asking too much of us, that an injustice has occurred, or maybe that we're in a stage of grief, grief, for example, where we have to move through this angry phase to move forwards. I mean, anger is more complicated than that. But when we're able to allow anger in, we can say, oh, I must be, why am I feeling angry? If an injustice has occurred, how do I use this energy, this physical energy that's arising in my body? to make change, to ensure this thing that's making me angry is either stopped or doesn't happen again. So again, just to reiterate, fear helps us run from danger, stops ourselves from putting ourselves in threat. Anxiety helps us predict what will go wrong so we can plan against it going wrong. And anger helps us turn against and stop injustice. So once you realize this, it doesn't matter what century you're living in. You can pay attention to the things that arise in your body, stop fearing them and use them to help you function more effectively and get kind of to where you want to be in life. I love the anger example because it's one that is really, really frequent. What's the point in being mad about it? Mm. You know, if I'm mad about it, nothing will change. But it sounds like from your perspective, like listening to that anger can almost tell you something about yourself, but also how you're interacting with the world and potentially show you maybe what needs to change or what, yeah. what change. And it's a really, you know, anger is an amazing energy. You know, we know, for example, that anger drives creativity. We know that, for example, after a breakup, it is the anger phase that drives you out of bed and into your world, you know, into your future life. It's, I don't know if you ever had that thought of which, when you're going through a breakup, everything is normally so negative and self-blaming and painful but then you'll have this thought of I, I can't believe they ended it have they seen me you know you're like marching out the house in your best outfit like anger will drive you forwards into the next period of your life so it's an incredibly useful energy the issue with anger is how we manage it because it's particularly in the UK we aren't taught how to use it. We tend to swing in two directions. One is this kind of bursting with anger, it pours out of us. Um, often we don't get to that point until we've tried to repress anger for a long time and we simply can't anymore. And we just lose it on our siblings or our family members or our partner. Or, and this is particularly British I've noticed, is we go the other way into passive aggression. So if you imagine anger as energy, now imagine if you have a bike tire, right? And you start pumping air into it. 
when we burst with anger it's like it's like exploding that that tire all the anger floods out passive aggression is like taking a pin and just pricking that bike tire and that anger that you know how the air flows out at a lower level but for a longer period of time Passive aggression is like a slow puncture. Anger comes out of us at a low level, but just like spraying over everyone and everything around us for hours. So <laughs> we really do need to learn about what anger is, identify what's making us angry and find ways to effectively express our anger, meet whatever need it's there for so that we don't swing into one of these two ways of responding that often doesn't help anyone. So then on the flip side of, you know, appropriately expressing or acting on or paying attention to our emotions, what's the harm in inhibiting them or keeping them in? How does that kind of come out? Yeah, it depends. It really depends. I have seen some people get through their whole lives repressing all of their emotions, and I'm not sure what their lived experience is like, but some people genuinely can do it right? Um, But it's not like that for many of us. For many of us, if we keep trying to push down our emotions, they pop up in other places that we least expect them to, like whack-a-mole. I don't know, for example, you've ever been really under pressure at work, trying to keep it together there, and then you go home and lose it on someone else, right? So sometimes it pops out in other places. Sometimes we become so good at repressing it that we start to feel nothing. I mean, actually nothing. You know, one of the theories for some people around numbness and depression, that feeling of emptiness, is that that anger, for example, has been turned in for so long that you end up shutting down and feeling nothing at all. So there are many different things that can happen when you don't feel your emotions. Mainly it is, it's simplest, they'll just keep sticking around. But at its worst, they may lead you to feel nothing. Okay. So I guess there's potentially a lot of, of harm in, in not paying attention to them. Yeah. You, you mentioned the attachment styles and things like that in terms of relationships and how there is a book for that. I know um, that's something that's touched on in your own book in terms of attachment styles and how that impacts adulthood um can you give us some kind of insight as to how you know for example someone might end up with i guess being the person who shuts off all their emotions or some of those how those childhood experiences impact our experiences of feelings and all of that stuff yeah so i'm i'm one of those shut off people or i was okay so before we get into attachment styles just because you if you listen to this and go oh i have that attachment style it doesn't mean you always will Attachment styles are more fluid than I think people often talk about. Um, And by becoming aware of your kind of tendencies in terms of attachment styles, you can move towards another one. So, um, yes, basically, in our first few years of life, we have relationships that essentially not only teach us about the world, but allow our brain to finish wiring together. If you have a caregiver who not only kind of sees you, I don't literally mean visually sees you, I mean is able to notice your needs and make sense of them for you and responds appropriately to your emotions. You learn early on, emotions are okay, needing people is fine, other people will want to and can be there for me. And you will develop what we call a secure attachment style 
right? This idea that I don't need to be distressed or dysregulated or change how I am around others. Now, again, it's much more complicated than that because you could have all that and then, you know, have someone break up with you or see in the papers that you're meant to, or like watch a movie and learn that you need to be independent and change your behavior. So at its most simple, that is a secure attachment style. Okay. Only about 50% of the population have that. The rest of us fall into mainly three other categories. Um, I'm going to just talk about two, really, because the third one, which we call disorganized attachment, only affects 2% of the population. Um, so we tend to think about the avoidant attachment style and the anxious attachment style. Now, I like to think of these in terms of animals, right? Okay. So someone who has caregivers who are intermittently there for them, i.e. is like really appropriate, responding exactly as they need one moment, and then totally dismissive or um, distracted or anxious themselves and pouring that anxiety on the, onto the child a moment later. May um, The child who experiences that kind of learns, okay, so I can't rely on this person being there for me. But if I keep initiating interaction with them, at some point it will work. So, you know, puppies, for example. Yeah. You know how puppies like bounce around? They're like, hey, 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 I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. All right. The child who learns that their parents or caregivers will be intermittently there for them adapts in this brilliant way where much like a puppy, they center their caregivers in their attention in their mind and will keep initiating contact. Now, as a kid, they might've been described as needy, for example. Um, and as an adult, that, that label often follows them through life, right? So when I'm, for example, dating people, when um, I meet someone and I like them, I will almost like an overzealous gardener uh, start watering the seeds of a new relationship. If they start pulling away, I'll offer more attention. You know, I'll start watering it a little bit more. Then if they come back in, I'll celebrate by giving it even more attention. So the anxious attachment style is basically about um, surviving, adapting and keeping people close by initiating as much attention as possible. But it can be extremely anxiety provoking, particularly if someone pulls away. The avoidant attachment style, however, is where someone learns the adults in my life consistently aren't able to be there for me. So they shut down. They tend to become hyper independent, trying to rely on logic, being near their caregivers, but not um, initiating emotional interactions. And what that looks like, so, you know, like a cat. Yes. You know how cats kind of wander into the house and they'll sit near you, but if you get too close, they're going to walk away. Um, in adult life, they might be described as having that their walls are up. They might be described as being cold in dating relationships because they might initiate contact. Um, you know, they might start dating, for example. Things might be going really well. But then suddenly when it becomes too emotionally close, the person with the avoidant attachment style shuts down. Because in both of these situations, the brain is trying desperately to manage the distress and fear that someone can't be there for them. So even though these two things look totally different on the surface, they're both driven by the idea that someone and the idea of fear that someone cannot and will not want to be there for you. It must be hard to, like you said, to it, it's possible to move towards different attachment styles mm. and address some of those challenges. It must be very difficult without insight. 
Yes, 100%, you know, um, especially so, especially as the negative, there's so many negative, gosh, I can't even say it, especially as there are so many negative connotations around, for example, the word needy. So someone who has an anxious attachment style, all they need is someone who can securely and calmly reassure them that they will be there for them. But because the word needy is so denigrated in society, often people end up not realizing, oh, this is my survival skill leaning in. They start berating themselves. Oh my God, I'm so needy. No one will want to be there with, for me. Yeah. Or someone who's avoidant might even feel a bit smug, like I'm so independent. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then people end up, uh, being quite negative about the void and like, oh, they're so dismissive. Whereas actually once we get awareness, not only can we stop criticizing ourselves and stop criticizing others, we can make sense of each other's behaviors and actually ask for what we need, giving our relationships a much better chance. So those early attachment styles or early experiences of attachment, mm. out, I guess, by the sounds of it play out in later life in relationships, mm. What about the early experiences of, you're mentioning there about emotions when a parent can or can't meet you mm. where you're at or, or address your needs. How does that impact someone's ability to kind of understand their own emotions and their own sense of self, I guess? Yeah, it's that's a very interesting one because again, it's quite complicated. So emo how you and I experience our emotions will depend on, for example, our DNA. It will depend on the safety of the environment we grew up in. It will depend on the language we were given from the people around us. It will depend on what we live through, right? And um, the coping skills we have. But answering your question specifically about childhood, you know, for us to have the best chance to understand ourselves and our emotions and manage them, what we kind of needed um, was someone to act almost like a mother bird. You know how mother birds like catch worms and then they digest it up, they chew it all up, it's quite revolting. And then like regurgitate it into the baby bird's mouth. Yeah. Yeah. We need care our caregivers to see us, to see our emotion and to say, oh, that, that thing you're feeling is sadness or that thing you're feeling is cold or that thing you're feeling is pain. And you're feeling this because of, for example, you fell and hurt your knee or because the temperature has dropped or because um, you know, someone taking your toys. Um, and what you do about it is, and gives you a list of solutions. When that happens, the baby to the child suddenly goes, oh, right, this feeling is this, that's okay. When I feel that it's for a reason, and there are things I can do about it and other people can help me. And this means not only do they have language that they will carry on into later life and a sense of understanding of who they are. It means that the next time they experience that very same situation, the emotions don't have to be as strong, right? Because the first time you hurt yourself, you're in pain. If you didn't know what it was, you might be like, oh my word, I'm in danger, I'm gonna die. The next time you're like, it's a mere flesh wound, it's gonna be fine. So. That early experience of having your emotions made sense of for you carries on throughout your life. So what it sounds like there is that, like the, like the mother bird, mm. that the people around you and your early experiences of emotions, they help you digest some of those feelings, help you make sense of them. And in the absence of that, that can impact those patterns later on. But again, probably 
again with insight something you can work on right massively you know if you think about the role of a therapist essentially what we do so the the fancy word is mentalization right the idea that we can mentalize someone else's experience digest it for them make sense of it for them a therapist really one of our main jobs is to be that mother bird so um it's never too late but also there's some really hilarious things that you can do that really um, can help you if you feel like you missed that period. So the first thing isn't hilarious. The second thing is, the first thing, for example, is just doing a body scan each day for literally one minute, but multiple times a day. You scan from your head to your toe and just notice what is there. And if you notice a physical sensation, you might not have a label for it, but it might be like, this is tightness in my chest. It arose because that person insulted me. And you start paying attention to these physical responses, noticing what they're linked to and what makes them feel better. And that awareness will help you do the things that maybe you missed out on. You'll get emotion language. You'll know how to support yourself. Um, but the funny thing that you can do is what we know is because of mirror neurons, you know, these um, brain cells that we have that basically copy other people's lived experience. So if you stub your toe, I'll flinch because my brain will activate as if it's happening to me. So this really funny thing, if, you, if I start subtly copy, copying your physical responses, so if I tip my head, for example, and look at you in the same way as you're looking at me, the mirror neurons in my brain will start making me feel like you do, yes? So if you want to really build your emotional intelligence, as in your ability to interpret and read other people's emotional experiences, just subtly copy them. The reason I say it's hilarious is because if you're not subtle about this, it gets weird very fast, <laughs> <laughs> right? So if you're, for example, wanting to practice with people you don't know, you might be sitting on the London Underground and suddenly start copying the person in front of you. If you're staring them out and mimicking them, though, it's going to get strange real quick. So I like to do this subtly. I do do it on the underground. That's why I gave it, gave you that example. But I try to not look at, I look, you know, look, glance over quickly, see what they're doing and then just copy it and see, oh, I wonder how they're feeling. So you can build your emotional intelligence, even if you skipped that part of your life. I love to hear that there's such hope there because, you know, I see it online and the online space is probably not the best place to be having all the nuanced conversations but you see a lot of people who you know get entrenched in my attachment style is this or me or you know that's that's uh, and you know to some extent without the insight it is really unfortunate that people have that belief similarly with personality type and all of this that it's not flexible um but it sounds like from what you're saying that there are things we can do to work on this stuff Oh my word, I would never have written a 480 page book <laughs> if I didn't believe that literally everything you go for it through in life uh, not only can be made sense of, but that there's things you can do to manage them. You know, one of the really beautiful things about social media and the internet that you just mentioned is that you can access more information than ever about your psychology. A real problem is that when people don't deliver that information with nuance and don't give you all the information, what often happens is people hear, oh, the reason I feel like this is because of X. And now there's, and then that's as far as they go, right? So we slip off them into either a kind of victim mentality, right? Rather than a survivor and thriver mentality who understands why they feel the way they do, who, uh, where everything from then on is going to happen to them rather than they're empowered to recognize, okay, this thing did happen in my past that was incredibly distressing. And there is something I can do about it. 
Sophie, I know you have so much going on, so I don't want to take up too much of your time. I could honestly listen to this all day, but if this is a snippet of what the book is about, I cannot wait to get through it. Um, just to kind of wrap up, is there anything you feel people should kind of know about the book, about yourself, you know, where to find you, all of that type of stuff? Or has this kind of given a snippet as to, as to what's in it? Um, I mean, it's just funny because... I only ever thought that I'd have a chance to write one book. And so when I was putting together the idea for this book, I was like, right, if I'm going to leave one thing on the planet, what would it be? And I wanted to answer the three questions that people always bring to therapy, right? Why do I feel the way I do? What's keeping me here and how do I move forward? And because I was so determined to leave something that could answer people's questions, irrespective of what they're going through, this book is about every topic under the sun, you know, like, your relationships, your relationship with yourself and others, the way the media affects you each day, the way a uh, structural inequality presses down on you and how you might turn it in against yourself, how you might collectively with society overcome structural inequality. What do you do about your emotions, intrusive thoughts, uh, you know, dating, dating apps? Literally everything is in there. And the reason, and it's funny because I got a two book deal, so I could have just split this over two books and not had to write all of this in one go. But, um, <laughs> But so, yes, if you are feeling like you don't know where to turn and you want something that makes sense of, that shows you, I suppose, that being human does sometimes involve struggle, but there are ways to understand yourself. You are never alone, even on those darkest days. Then maybe a manual for being human is for you. Um, you can also find me on Instagram at at underscore Dr. Soph, so D-R-S-O-P-H. There is another Dr. Soph, but she has a private account and I think she probably hates me because I think she gets tagged in a lot of stuff. Underscore Dr. Soph. And the book can be found wherever you buy your books. So Amazon, Waterstones, local bookstores. In fact, there's 25% off, I think, at Hive, which is an independent bookstore website right now. And yeah, it's waiting for you. <laughs> well, I can't wait to, to get stuck into it, Sophie. Um, look, I'll, I'll leave it there. I think that was really, really helpful, firstly, for a lot of people. All these questions that we've kind of fleshed out a little bit today even if it's just the surface level are all things that come up so often in questions on instagram but also in the clinic room so i really appreciate your time for for fleshing those out and i really wish you the best of luck with the book it sounds incredible thank you so much for having me on that was really a lovely chat